Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is The Way We Live Now. Today is day 99, since many of us have slept through the night, and day 47 of this podcast. I've been haunted by stories during COVID-19 of people dying alone in hospitals with no one holding their hand. Families who've been unable to properly grieve or undergo the age-old rituals of mourning, all of which involve gathering. My guest today is Brian Markward, the obituary editor at the Boston Globe. Brian, thank you so much for joining me to talk about the way we live now. Well, thank you for inviting me. Can you describe for us in sensory detail where you are right now as we're having this conversation? Sure. Uh, I live two hours north of Boston. Uh, I live uh, in West Lebanon, New Hampshire, about a mile uh, and a quarter south from the Dartmouth College campus. Uh, And I am in my house now. Uh, I actually was uh, uh, ahead of the curve and working from home and have been uh, Uh, and made an arrangement to work uh, out of the office most of the time about 10 years ago. Uh, And so this is, uh, I'm actually near my home base. Uh, I have a sofa that I sit on that has uh, a picture window next to it that I look out uh, at my cul-de-sac in the neighborhood. And I have bears who walk through the backyard. uh, (laughs) And when I'm lucky, I get to see them. Wow. Um, That's interesting that you were ahead of the curve uh, by 10 years. and that, you know, working from home is not something that's that's new for you. It isn't, uh, but um, as with with everything, um, everything else in our world with the pandemic, um, so much changed uh, in in what I do uh, when the pandemic hit. Right. Uh, and um, while I may have already been home, uh, and you know, able to to work in, in hoodies and jeans rather than dressing up for an office. Um, I have seen 
dramatic changes in, in what I've done, as, as I'm sure has everyone who writes obituaries for a living and, mm-hmm. uh, and other papers like the Washington Post and the New York Times. Right. So you, you are the obituary editor at the Boston Globe, and you've written well over 2,000 obituaries of those who have died in the past 14 years or so in the state of Massachusetts. That's correct. And, and um, occasionally I write about people uh, elsewhere in New England, uh, and even more occasionally, uh, once in a while, someone who had uh, done, some, done something significant uh, in her or his time in Boston. Uh, and uh, the significance was such that, that well, we decided that the Globe should still feature them in a staff a news obituary after they died. Mm-hmm. But mostly it's, mostly it's people in Massachusetts, mostly it's people in greater Boston. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the requests, of course, come in from everywhere. Uh, anyone who spent a few years in Boston, um, sometimes their family will, will reach out to me and ask for an obituary when, when, when their time arrives. Right. What is that like, being on the receiving end of people who are in the really, really early stages of shock and grief reaching out with that sort of ultimate feeling? I mean, I've, I've been there myself of wanting uh, a loved one's life to be honored. It's the biggest and most important part of my job, and I don't say that lightly. Um, I mean, I think the easier thing to look at and to consider with an obituary writer is what you write and what is published. Uh, And that is an enormous part of my job. Um, But the most time-consuming part of my job is going through all of the requests uh, and largely being the person who has to make a lot of the choices about who gets a news obituary in the globe and who doesn't. I write roughly 150 obituaries a year, uh, and I say no to roughly 600, 800 a year. Um, Sometimes that can be as uh, easy as just uh, a note saying no to the uh, the funeral home. Um, Many funeral homes will send just about every one your way, even even when they know there's not that much chance. But in some cases, uh, it involves phone calls with families, email exchanges with families, multiple phone calls with families if, if, they, uh, if they really, really want this to happen. Uh, and I'm always mindful that even when I have to say no, I'm saying no to someone who is in a moment of intense grief. Uh, who's just lost somebody that they love. Uh, and uh, I too have been through that. Uh, and in fact, uh, really decided uh, that I wanted to try to write obituaries for a living after I had gone through a period in my family of, of losing um, multiple people in one nine and a half month period. So I know the kind of grief that they're experiencing. Uh, and so that means those conversations are all as gentle as I can make them, even when I'm saying no, uh, and as informed as I can make them. Uh, I want them to all, I want all of the families to know that I've considered their requests uh, fairly and thoroughly uh, before deciding one way or the other. What are some of what goes into making that kind of decision? I mean, certainly there's the deaths of people who are public figures where there's a sense of, of 
of course, you know, the paper of record is going to mm-hmm. cover uh, their their death. But what what are some of the other criteria that go into weighing? Sure. Yeah, it, it's um, as I as I tell people, there's no uh, there's no easy set formula. Some of what goes into this is, frankly, what time of year the requests come in. Um, people who work in funeral homes and who write obituaries for a living know something that a lot of people don't know, which is that uh, there are actually busy times of year for our lines of work. Um, people people will hold on to uh, to get past certain key points in their lives, anniversaries, birthdays, the graduation of a child, the marriage of, of a child, uh, and the biggest clump of, hol- of, of holidays that people hold on for are um, from Thanksgiving through the beginning of the year uh, for all faiths. Uh, and a lot of people, even when their health is failing, will try to hold on to get through that. So there's always uh, an uptick in the number of requests that begins right after Thanksgiving. And then, you know, there's an upward upward slope of, of more and more requests. And then there's a, just a whole ton of requests right after the beginning of the year. Um, so, uh, at that time of year, um, the ratio of obits that I can say yes to and the ones that I have to say no to is, is, is much more significant and severe. Um, in all times of the year, I'm, along with looking at the lives of the people who, whose families have reached out for an obit, I'm trying to be mindful of what our obituary pages are going to look like. Um, I have really tried in the 14 years in this job to make the Globe's obituary pages look more like Greater Boston and Massachusetts, which has become even more diverse in the 14 years that I've been in the job. Uh, And uh, obituary pages always have been predominantly older white men because they're the ones uh, historically in the top of the power structure. And they're the ones who have held the jobs uh, that are most likely to make them must obituaries. Um, you know, if you if you were uh, a prominent politician, if you were the president of the bank, if you were head of the school committee, uh, the list goes on and on mm-hmm. for all of the professions. Um, if you had that job 30 years ago and then are now in your 70s or 80s and at the age where you need an obituary, you're probably a white guy. Mm-hmm. So that section is almost always, and, and is still mostly, you know, the, the, the must obituaries are still mostly older white guys. So for all of the other obituaries that I can write in a year, I try very hard to make sure that I'm looking at um, demographics that have not been featured as prominently in mm-hmm. the past. Mm-hmm. Women, people of color, people in the LGBTQ community people who aren't as well off financially, um, people who have no connection with Harvard and MIT, who, mm. you know, and people who have a connection with one of those two two major institutions uh, have historically constituted a lot of uh, a lot of the news obituaries in the globe. And so I try to make sure that I reach out beyond them too. Mm. And that's not easy because, you know, when I say this, for every Every obituary that I say yes to, I have to say no to a lot of people. Uh, And saying that you want to make the obituary pages look more like Boston and making it happen means that you have to say no to a lot of families. And a family whose loved one is an older white guy 
who led an admirable and accomplished life doesn't necessarily want to hear that it would help the globe, it would help the community um, to make sure that all people are recognized. Mm -hmm. You know, when your loved one dies, you know, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but your politics go out the window. You want your loved one featured in the paper. Right. So it almost seems like this has a quality of a calling for you. I mean, I I understand that from a young age that you you knew you wanted to do this, exactly this, not just be a writer, not just be a journalist, but to write the stories of people and honor their lives um, after they've passed away. Well, some of it, I think earliest on, I was drawn to the biography form. Mm. Uh, I, I found... You know, I actually had a had a race with uh, my best friend in third grade to see who could read the most uh, most of the biographies that we had a set of in the back shelf in the in our third grade classroom. Uh, and then, as I got into newspapers, I realized that I had a reasonably good touch with writing profiles of people. Uh, and then, when I had the opportunity to write obituaries, I was struck by how much good could be done with a well-written, well-researched obituary. And then the final component of it was that I realized that I had the empathy to speak with grieving people, and not everyone does. Um, I mean, I think many of us who are empathetic think that we're really empathetic, but there's a slight difference between being empathetic with someone you know and being empathetic with hundreds and over the course of 14 years, thousands of people you will never meet. Uh, and in many cases, empathetic with them once in mm. your entire life mm -hmm. and once in your entire life. Uh, and I found that I had that in me uh, and it seemed to be a good fit for obituaries. And so back in 97, 98, uh, I thought, and at that point, I'd had some experience writing obituaries uh, for a couple of newspapers. I thought, well, I should see if I can find a way of doing this full time. Mm. And it took took roughly seven years mm -hmm. to be able to do that. You know, it, it strikes me that when someone dies, the shape of their life is complete. Mm -hmm. Memoirists and other kinds of writers always end up talking about sort of lives in acts, you know, like three-act structure. The middle is just one damn thing after another. And the third act doesn't end until that, that shape is complete. And so mm -hmm. it's so interesting to think about that as a form to be able to really tell the story of someone's life now that it has ended. And I imagine that these last months have had to be so intense. How has your experience changed or been different since the start of the pandemic? The word intense is, is, is very key here. Uh, everything has become more intense. And I have to say that I, I anticipated that that might be the case. I wasn't quite, um, even with my anticipation, I wasn't quite prepared for just how intense it all became. Um, I mean, if you speak with grieving people for years and years and years, you get a sense of how world events might 
affect them when they're on the phone with you. And I had this sense as the pandemic was beginning to unfold that this was going to put us all on edge, and it has. Um, the obituaries that I've written about people who have died of COVID-19 are their own special kind of experience uh, because uh, you know because it's just a terrible way to die. And the people I interview, uh, the relatives and the friends of those who who have died of this, uh, I mean, we all can use you know we can all Google symptoms and how things play out with an illness like this. So they know what their loved ones are going through and they can't be with them. Mm -hmm. So it's a particular kind of pain that they're in when they get on the phone with me. That said, death is not sheltered in place. Death has not taken time off. Uh, death by every other means has continued apace. Uh, and in many cases, the families of the people who have died of other illnesses, particularly if they're in the hospital at the end, have faced many of the same restrictions uh, as people who have lost loved ones to COVID-19. They can't go into the hospital. You know, they can't hold somebody's hand at the end. They can't. They can't. They can't hug them. They, and in some cases, can't even talk to them. Yeah. I've mentioned this to people as I've had this discussion that you know, when my father died of cancer nearly 23 years ago, I held him as he took his last breaths. Now that was an emotionally wrenching moment, but one that I would uh, I would not trade for anything. I was glad that I could be there. I was glad that because I was the person in the room who could do that, who could stand by the side of his bed, who could gather him up in my arms. You know, even though I knew he couldn't feel or know what was going on, it was important to me, and it became important to the rest of the family. That experience is being denied to basically everybody I'm speaking with now. Uh, and it's just an awful thing. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether your loved one died of COVID-19 or something else. For most people, they're not able to have that experience. And it makes it makes every conversation um, that much more intense, that much more wrenching. Right. I know. I, 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 I've thought about that so often since the start of of the pandemic, not just in terms of the numbers of people who have died of COVID-19, but the numbers of people who have died and have died alone. And and also the the lack of ritual and gathering. I mean, gathering is what we do when someone right. dies. It's what every culture does is we derive comfort from the rituals if we are, you know, of a particular faith, regardless, the people coming with their casseroles and their... Mm -hmm. Yeah, sitting together, whether it's at a wake or it's at a shiva or it's you know whatever the culture of the rituals of death are, and what replaces that? I mean, what does it do to our grieving? There are so many people who are grieving right now who are grieving in isolation. Yeah, I'm I'm concerned, and uh, I would not be surprised if there is a ripple effect over certainly the months ahead and perhaps even the years ahead of you know people having to deal with this with therapists with their with their clergy with their friends who are listen because when when there's a such a wide swath of grief denied that grief will still need addressing at some point um just being able to cry in front of somebody that you care about and trust uh, is 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 an enormous thing at a time like this. 
Uh, and it is it has occurred to me that you know and and I want to be very careful here to not say that I'm replacing anything, but it has occurred to me that in some cases, in some instances, in some conversations, that the conversation with me is giving people a chance to at least get a tiny bit of that back. Mm-hmm. You know, they get to at least talk about it and talk about how difficult it was for them to not be by their loved one's side uh, and to cry, um, you know, because people have permission to say things and, and do things on the other end of the phone with me that maybe they don't feel comfortable doing in front of others. Mm. So I'm glad when I have been able to do that, that I am there for those people. You know, it's not an insignificant number. It's not everyone, but uh, there are certainly people who, you know, have have really had to be able to talk some of those things out. Yeah. Um, and that has happened in conversations with me, you know, and, and, and conversations and things that they would say that would, you know, are not meant for obituaries and would not, would not be in obituaries. Mm. Uh, but they just need to have that conversation. So let me ask you, I think this is my final question to you, is sure. I'm imagining the capacity for that kind of empathy, right? And you just really movingly spoke about the, you know, this kind of like one time only, these conversations, these intersections with people that you had never spoken with before and may never speak with again, and showing up for them with the capacity to feel and to listen, but, you know, empathy is, is, uh, in part, you know, defined as, you know, shared feeling. How do you hold that, especially during a time when there is this sheer volume of, um, these grieving and isolated people you're meeting, you know, in, in, you know, over the phone, you're, you're absorbing, um, some of their story how do you hold that and what brings you a sense of strength and and hope as you continue that's a difficult question and it you know to some extent you know my answer will echo you know what i had said earlier about choosing people for obituaries is that there's no particular easy formula for being able to 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 fill that role i've always said that some of the most interesting and engaging and involving quotes that appear in the globe are in obituaries that I write because I listen uh, and because I open myself up to the grief of others uh, when they need to be able to say things. Uh, And I listen for a long time and I have long conversations with people. Uh, And that means putting myself on the line because you know, I have to open myself up to them and let their grief wash over me for them to feel comfortable enough saying the things that they need to say that will really truly honor the person that they care about. And then the phone call ends and I've got all of their emotions swimming through my head. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, in the pandemic, it's 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 been a difficult time. Um, I used to go to the gym seven days a week because, you know, really vigorous aerobic exercise on the treadmill or elliptical is a good way of 
burning off some of the uh, some of the emotions that stay with me. And I can't do that now. Uh, I've been hiking in the woods as much as I can. It's not quite the same. Uh, and frankly, I think I can say that I haven't found a particularly good way of taking in all of those emotions and still being able to, you know, jump up the next day and, and jump back into things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I don't know what and how I'm going to direct all of that after this is done, um, assuming that there is such a thing as after this is done, which is not entirely clear at this point. Um, but uh, uh, a lot of it is still there. It's a more intense kind of interviewing than I've done before in this job in 14 years. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's all there. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've taken on a, a lot more emotion and pain than I have in the past. Mm-hmm. And it's still with me. Yeah. I'm listening to you and thank, thank you for, for, for saying that, you know, and, and I'm, and I'm thinking the word connecting keeps on kind of occurring to me as I'm listening to you is that maybe ultimately that sense of profound human connection uh, that happens every single time you have one of those conversations is what the hope is. Like maybe it's just, that's what it is, is yeah. this podcast I started because uh, during COVID just thinking what connects us, you know, we can't gather, what allows us to feel that uplifted feeling of, you know, one heart vibrating with another. And mm-hmm. anyway, I'm so, um, I'm grateful to you for, for, for talking with, with me. And, and I think everyone is going to really uh, connect to, to what you're saying and, and to the work that you're doing. And in Judaism, which is the uh, religion that I was brought up in, there's this phrase that people always say when someone passes away, which is, may his memory be a blessing, you know, may her memory mm-hmm. be a blessing. And then really that's, uh, it occurs to me, that's what you're doing. So yes, yeah, it, it is. I'm, I'm touched back on what you were saying. If I have a calling, it's it's to it's to make sure that the blessings of these memories are not forgotten, uh, and that they have a place to live. Mm. What I do with obituaries, I try to make sure that I am as invisible as possible, mm-hmm. and that instead, what I am is a uh, is an avenue for those memories to to find a permanent place Mm. out there in the world. That's beautiful. Brian, thank you so much. Thank you, Danny. It was a pleasure speaking with him. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to The Way We Live Now. Tell us the way you're living now. We want to hear. Call us on, you might want to get a pen for this, 909-713-8995. That's 909-713-8995. And record your story, and we might just use it on the pod. Also, you can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash the way we live now pod. We are creating a community here, and we would love for you to join us. You can find me on Instagram at Danny Ryder. The Way We Live Now is a production of iHeartRadio. It's produced by Lowell Berlanti. Beth Ann Macaluso is executive producer. Special thanks to Tristan McNeil and Tyler Klang. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.